Welcome back, listeners. This is part two in the last installment of our series about the heist at the Carnegie Library in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In part one, we discussed the various collections of artifacts in this special library, as well as the people who are responsible for them and the great measures they took to prevent their theft. In this episode, we pick up where I left off when I ask about a certain bookstore that may have had something to do with selling stolen artifacts. And now, on to the whodunit part. We hope you enjoy. So an institution begins to come into play here, a member of the community, uh, a highly thought of member of the community, the Caliban Bookshop, and of course its founder, John Shulman. And so he plays an interesting role in this tale, you know, unwittingly or wittingly helping in the heist. So, you know, tell us about the importance of the Caliban Workshop and uh, John's role in uh, selling some of the artifacts from the library. So John's an interesting character. The Caliban Bookstop, Bookshop was was something of a of a Pittsburgh institution, and and up until 2017 or so, 2018 or so, if you would Google things to to see when you're in Pittsburgh, people would often would often mention it as one of those things. I, it was in the Wall Street Journal at one point as you know one of the cultural things to see when you're in Pittsburgh. It was this nice uh, nice store that did sort of general used books and also had this rare book component. And it was online, of course, and John sold a number of books online. He'd founded it in the 1980s when he just started working out of his apartment selling books. He, you know, he didn't even have a proper storefront. And over the course of the years, he became a very well-known and prestigious collector. He was on Antiques Roadshow. You know, they have these experts come in and talk about rare, you know, books and, and archival sources. And he was one of these experts that were periodically brought into this famous PBS show. You know, he did appraisals for all the local institutions, you know, for Penn State and for Pitt and for, you know, Duquesne. And, and he was just this really well-known, well-respected and, and well-known nationwide amongst the group of booksellers. He was a member of the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America, this, this very, uh, you know, prestigious organization of booksellers. He was always showing up at the, at the major book fairs. He was friendly with and sometimes really friendly with a lot of his fellow booksellers. And as it turns out, a lot of these missing books were, and maps and documents were being sold by him right through his legitimate bookstore, which was only a couple blocks away from the Carnegie Library. And as I understand it, he actually did regular business with the Carnegie Library from some items that were not actually stolen. He would just sell bits and pieces of the collection just as a regular course. That's right. That's right. That's one of the interesting aspects of this. So he uh, was selling these stolen items, and he was also selling legitimately deaccessioned items. Uh, so he had this relationship with the library where he would sell these books that they couldn't use, that had been donated to them, and that they couldn't use them. And he would, you know, pay them X amount of dollars for them and write them a check and, you know, thank you for these books. And then he would turn around and sell them, which is a fairly standard thing for libraries and booksellers to do, honestly. So he had this entirely legitimate relationship with the library. And then he had this other relationship with the exact same library, which was not legitimate. And that was to funnel these books from this nice collection and turn them into cash. Well, we're getting close to the big reveal, but I want to ask one more question to talk a little bit more about John's involvement here. And so the issue of stamps, book plates, and the withdrawn from library stamp, you know, I, I wasn't sure what all these things were. I had to kind of look them up. And so j- just for, uh, you know, the sake of people out there that aren't uh, into antiquities and, uh, and rare books, they don't really know the practice of it. You know, what did the stamps and book plates mean and how was John helping this process along? For most books, particularly books that are acquired by a library and that they go into a nice collection, a special collection, they will be marked by that library so that 
so that no one who looks at that book later will be mistaken about who owns it, right? So, you know, you've probably seen these in some books, they'll, they'll put an embossed stamp that will have the seal of the library or a perforated stamp or just a regular ink stamp. And it'll say, you know, Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh or whatever, whatever the owner library's name is. And in many cases, they'll have all three of those and they'll have them on several places. And then what, what libraries often do, and certainly what owners often do is put book plates into the front of the book. So as soon as you open the book, there's a, there's a little square piece of paper that's adhered to the inside cover that has, you know, the name of the owner, if it was a personal owner, or if it's the library, then it'll have the name of the library and the crest. And if you look at very old books, sometimes there'll be five or six of these things where one owner has put, you know, his or her book plate on top of the prior owners or next to the prior owners. And you can sort of see the provenance of this book just by looking at the book plates. Anyway, most of these books had these, these Carnegie Library book plates. As you might imagine, if you try to get rid of these stamps or you try to get rid of these book plates, you generally either tear the what's called the front end paper paste down or you have to cut out pages or you cut out parts of pages and it, and it destroys a lot of the value of the book in trying to get rid of the stamp. So what John did to sort of get around that whole thing was to acknowledge that this was that this had once belonged to a library and he called it an ex-library book. And then he just stamped withdrawn from library in, in bright red ink on the bottom of that book plate so that anyone who later saw this, this book would say, yes, this belonged in a library at one point, but it's clearly been withdrawn from this library and wouldn't ask any questions about it. Well, and especially since he had a pre-existing relationship with the Carnegie Library, I mean, it's uh, just extra smokescreen for him. That's right. So he had this relationship with the library and he, and he was doing this out in the open. That's this other sort of almost convoluted an interesting technique that you can get away with in this type of crime, which is if I was doing this on the sly, I wouldn't be so open about it, right? I wouldn't be using my storefront to be selling this stuff that's clearly from a library unless it belonged to me legitimately. And so by doing that, by, by not, not, not trying to hide it very much, I think that sort of worked in his favor. Well, so now it's time for the big reveal. And, you know, over the course of the audit, a suspect comes into focus. And, you know, as they're trying to figure out what still exists and does not exist within the collection, it becomes pretty obvious that it has to be someone from the inside that is stealing from the collections. And so, you know, tell us about that process and how one particular name emerges. So, you know, the, the Palm art, art advisors, the people who are doing this audit of this collection, go in and literally within an hour of starting to do the audit of this entire collection, they start finding these books on sort of high shelves at the end of a row out of a way that had been cannibalized, that had that when they opened the bindings to these books, all of the illustrations that were in the books had just been razored out. And they knew immediately, immediately within an hour that that this collection had been looted. And they found one after another of these things. And of course, they they asked the one man who was in charge of security, who knew everything about the collection, whose collection this essentially was for the past 20 or 25 years, Greg Grioria about it. And he sort of, you know, hemmed and hawed and couldn't come up with a, with a, a right answer. And so eventually he became sort of angry at the questions they were asking him. And it, and it became clear that he knew much more about this than he was letting on. And, uh, and then, you know, eventually the, the art advisors went and told the, you know, the people in charge of the library about it. So that's, that's when the authorities got involved and eventually Greg kind of gives up the tale of his heist. So talk to us about that. Yeah. You know, I've, I've thought a lot about uh, his motivation in this because he definitely knew he was going to get caught. He definitely knew when they were doing the audit 
you know, then they started planning the audit that as soon as anyone was in there looking with any sort of, you know, enthusiasm toward finding out what was in the collection, that they were going to immediately find out that all these things were missing and that he was the only one who could have done this uh, over the years. But I, I think he had to have known even earlier than that, just because of the things he was stealing. Uh, eventually, people are going to notice when the Principia Mathematica is missing. Eventually, people are going to notice when all of the, the Blau Atlas maps are missing. People are just going to notice eventually. You can't get away with it forever. And so I, I, uh, you know, I sort of wondered about the psychology of it, about how he was feeling about it. And so when the police finally came to, to talk to him at his house or his apartment, it didn't take them very long for him to own up to it. He, he sort of admitted it and said, yeah, I did it. I, you know, and tell the administration, I'm sorry. I just, <laughs> wow. yeah, I just did it, and, you know, and that's it. And, and of course, he then gave up his Confederate, uh, John Shulman, immediately. One of the things that highlighted, uh, you know, pretty loudly for me was that, uh, you know, Greg was not necessarily born to be a thief. You know, he didn't cover his tracks very well. And as the story has kind of come out into the light, you find out that uh, he was asking John Shulman after these uh, audits began, how do I start covering my tracks? So, you know, just because you you deal in antiquities, how, what, were, what were some of the methods recommended for, for him to maybe ghost the trail a little bit? Well, what's interesting about this is that they hadn't thought about this in advance, apparently. And that's astonishing to me because, you know, I read about and write about and teach about these insider criminals who steal from their own libraries all the time. And for the most part, they're all pretty good at it in the sense that they know what to steal and what not to steal. So what you steal is things that aren't going to be missed, right? You steal things that people aren't going to look for. You don't steal the Mona Lisa, right? You don't steal the first folio. You don't steal the Principia Mathematica. You just steal the small stuff. And that way you can get away with it for a very long time. And even if someone calls you on the carpet for it, you can explain it away by saying, I don't know, you know, it, it went missing, things go missing, whatever. But I don't think Greg ever had any illusions that once people started poking around that he wouldn't be caught because because he was stealing such high value things. And surprisingly to me, he didn't plan for that. He didn't have a reasonable excuse. He just went ahead and did these things. And one of the things I've sort of thought about and concluded is that when you steal a single map from an atlas or you steal a single photograph from a collection of 150 photographs and you get away with it, you sort of think, okay, no one's going to notice. And they don't, no one notices for a year. And so you're like, I'll steal another one, right? And at some point, you sort of cross the Rubicon of stealing where <laughs> the, you can no longer explain it. But I don't think he ever realized that he had crossed that point. And by the time he realized it, that there was no going back, he was just like, I'm just going to keep stealing this stuff until someone finds out. And then I'll, and then I'll get caught. And then, and then I'll go to jail. Of course, he didn't go to jail. But he wasn't the greatest criminal mastermind is what I'll say. He was just this guy who had access to this really great collection and, and decided to steal from it. And then Shulman, who I think legitimately thought they were going to get away with it forever, then tried to sort of retroactively come up with these excuses because he knew that, you know, he was also in real trouble once, once Priori was caught. And right. so he came up with these excuses. Oh, well, some of them may be out for repair. And this other guy who used to work in the library may have, when Priori was on vacation, may have taken some other things out and sold them. He, he came up with all these excuses that if you had started off with those excuses and could plan for them, maybe they would have worked. But in, you know, in 2017, you know, it was, it was over. The, their goose was cooked and there was nothing. There was no amount of excuses that was going to explain everything. Well, and it sounded like John Shulman sort of broke that cardinal rule of uh, stealing is that don't partner up with somebody that knows less about crime than you do. 
That's the other thing. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I don't know if Shulman, I don't want to say Shulman was better at being a criminal than Priori. He seemed more savvy to me about the whole process. But yeah, if, if you, if you're, make sure you're the one that is in charge of everything if you're the criminal, because, you know, it's, it's the whole weakest link thing. And that person uh, who, you know, in this case, rolled over as soon as the police started asking him a few questions, if that's the person that you're relying on for your freedom, then you're in trouble. Yeah, you know, this this uh, series of events that went on for, you know, 25 years, this uh, ongoing theft from the Carnegie Library, I mean, this sent shockwaves into that community that collects those antiquities and those rare books and, you know, those maps. And, and uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, not a very large grouping of people that do that. And they, they work through these trusted vendors. And so, you know, one of the side effects that I thought was pretty sad from this story was that there were people that, you know, walked into, uh, you know, walked into John's store and with good faith, you know, bought something that they really liked. And then all of a sudden they're getting calls from law enforcement that the goods that they, that, that they had purchased are actually stolen and that they were going to have to give them back. And so, you yeah. know, tell, tell us about that process. I'm sure that was a big disappointment for everybody. Yeah, it is. For the most part, the, the end buyer, the collector who bought these things from, so, so John Shulman would very often sell these things to a different bookseller, another antiquarian bookseller, a friend or a colleague who would then sell it to the end buyer. And then, you know, and so they sort of had to sort of undo that whole sales stream once once it was clear um, that these things had been stolen. And so, you know, the, the collector might be someone in Japan or it might be someone in Germany or it might be someone in England who, you know, several steps down the line has ultimately bought this thing. And they've had this thing for a few years and they paid legitimate money for it. They didn't think it was stolen. And the, the bookseller that sold it to them didn't think it was stolen. And then they have to give it back, right? They have to give it back to the library. And it's this sort of sad, sorrowful thing for all people involved. And it's, it, it harms the other booksellers who now, uh, you know, their reputation has been impugned because they sold stolen goods to these end collectors and their names are in the newspapers. It affects the whole business. And, you know, I will say this of, of antiquarian booksellers, 99% of them are, are terrific and on the up and up. And there's 1% that, that were sort of happy to buy these, these things that they might not have been able to buy otherwise and for relatively cheap prices. But in the end, everyone ends up being soiled all the same, right? Even you know the the good faith purchasers, right along with the people who should have asked more questions, end up being soiled all the same. Even if even if the money is paid to say the collector, the collector at the you know the end buyer very often has his or her money reimbursed by the person they bought it from, just as a manner of doing good good business on the part of the bookseller. But it's possible that he or she bought something four or five years ago that they really wanted. And once they bought that thing, they stopped looking for others because they have it. Then they have to give that thing back. And then in the course of the next three or four years, they, they then forego the, the opportunity to buy something like it again. And so they're really, they really do sort of take it on the chin uh, through no fault of their own, all because, all because John Shulman and Greg Priori. And that brings me to my last question, Travis. You know, obviously there were many people in this community of uh, antiquities collectors that were hurt. And, uh, you know, Greg and John, you know, they, they were ultimately, you know, found guilty of, of their crimes and, and they, were, uh, they were to receive a penalty. But uh, the community universally did not approve of the sentences. And so can you tell us what those sentences were and then, you know, maybe reflect a little bit about how the community was feeling about them? Yeah, they were perfectly dreadful sentences. And I, I sort of worried about this going into it because I know how lenient uh, judges tend to be on these sorts of crimes that involve cultural heritage resources, particularly at the state level. But even by the standards of the pathetic sentences that these guys ordinarily get, this was really bad 
because this was really a significant amount of money. The, the restitution value set by the Paul Art advisors was around $8 million, which is a significant amount of money. And one of the things that these art advisors also said was that there are certain things that just cannot be found. Like there are things that are stolen that are just gone forever because you can't buy a duplicate copy of these things. So this was a legitimate, unique crime and a major crime. And the, I will say this about the district attorney in Allegheny County. They did a terrific job. The police, the investigators did a terrific job. And the judge sentenced these guys to house arrest and probation, which, which even I couldn't believe. I thought they would get some jail time, but Prairie got three years of house arrest and Shulman got four years of house arrest and then 12 years of probation. You know, people were obviously up in arms about this because, you know, because this had one of the things that happens when, when these things earn a lot of publicity, people get invested in it, they follow it. And so a lot of people were, were waiting sort of with bated breath to find out the example that's going to be set in this case to let people know that you cannot steal our cultural patrimony without having some significant consequences. And when it came down that these guys did not have any significant consequences, people were upset. You know, they were all over the community, both in Pittsburgh and all over the, the library and, and bookseller community. People were upset. It's just a, it, it, it's a terrible, terrible sentence. And it sets a terrible precedent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Travis. I really enjoyed our conversation. I appreciate it, Lawrence. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate us in your favorite podcasting app. Also, we'll add a link to Travis's Smithsonian Museum article titled The Inside Story of the $8 Million Heist from the Carnegie Library. We'll put that in our show notes and you can reach those at LegalTalkNetwork.com. That's all the time we have. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) 